0: at pandemics and vaccines, they looked at unrest or injustice or whatever, in those particular countries might cause ramifications further outside of that particular border. They talked about all these domestic issues, and in summary, what they said was by the time we get to 2030, things aren't going to be going very well. That was kind of the summary of it. Now, we don't need an article probably to tell us that or to point us to that reality. But I have so appreciated the book of Ruth, and as AJ as, as, uh, was praying, just thinking about the fact that no matter how things get, how crazy they look, how messed up our world seems to be, that we can read in the pages of Ruth, and indeed in all of Scripture, and recognize that... Even what appears to be disjointed and just a mess is not outside of or has some way come out from under the sovereign hand of God. He is moving in and through it all, right? And we've seen that in the book of Ruth. We see from what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has an eternal plan for all time to ultimately, as Paul says in the fullness of time, unite all things in Christ, all things in heaven and things in earth. So, yes, Ruth and Boaz and their son, Obed, point us to the king of Israel, David. But David then in turn points us beyond that to the king of kings and lord of lords. And so as we come to the end of Ruth, then we recognize that reality. But listen, the gospel is not just a theological truth. We can, if we're not careful, especially in a book like Ruth, focus on the sovereignty of God, focus on the character of God, focus on these deep theological truths, and miss a real important fact. That Jesus came to save a sinner like me. And he came to save a sinner like you. And as A.J. said in his prayer, he came to save all of us who are like Ruth, a Moabite, a foreigner, destitute and apart from Christ without hope in this world. He came to do that. Remember Luke chapter 15. He came to save one out of a 100 sheep. He came to save one out of 10 silver coins. He came to save and welcome back one prodigal son. And heaven rejoices over that. So there are deep theological truths in Ruth, but this is about a Redeemer who came to redeem individuals like you and me, right? So as we look at this book, one one writer I was reading this week was quoting Spurgeon, and I'd never seen this quote from Spurgeon, but Spurgeon said, Jesus is a real person in human history, our Redeemer. He died for me, a real person in desperate need. I hope today, I've been praying today that you will see your desperate need. Because we will see that that's the only kind of person that God receives. That's the only one that has any kind of spiritual legacy. And so, last week in Ruth chapter 3, it ended in verse 18 with Naomi saying, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter falls out. Because this man, talking about Boaz, will not rest until he settles the matter today. So at some point in time, early in the morning, after that strange scene that takes place on the threshing floor in chapter 3, Boaz goes to work. And that's what we see here beginning in verse 4. And what we find here first is a Redeemer who is willing to pay. A Redeemer who is willing to pay. Now, much of what we saw in chapter 3 was very strange to us. A woman coming and removing the covering off of a man's legs and laying close to him and all these, all these cultural nuances and practices that are just very strange to us. Well, the same thing continues in chapter 4, although not quite as provocative maybe, but it's still strange. What's going on here? And so as we read this, Ultimately, it boils down to someone who's willing to pay the price. And Boaz is that person. Remember back in the book of Ephesians, we talked about what a redeemer is. And a redeemer is someone who is not only recognizes the need to pay a price to bring back or restore, but he is the one or she is the one who is willing to pay that price. They have the means to do it. And not only do they have the means to do it, but they're willing to take on themselves the personal responsibility And the ramifications of that. And the responsibility of that. And so as we see this playing out here in the first part of chapter 4, as A.J. was reading, Boaz goes down and sits at the city gate. And this is the cultural center of the city. Okay, this is the courtroom. This is where the city hall. This is where the city council meets. this This is where everything happens. And that's where Boaz goes. And guess what happens? This other redeemer just happens to walk by. Same thing that's been going on in other places in the book. Behold, that word always is like, okay, pay attention. The Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Boaz knows him, seems to, calls him aside. They gather the elders of the city to come and sit down and hear the case. And Boaz begins to lay it out. Naomi has come back. She's selling this parcel of land. It belonged to our our relative Elimelech, her husband, And and so Boaz says, you have the opportunity, you have the obligation, you have the right to buy that first. Now there's questions among... Scholars, commentators, was she actually selling the land? Because remember, in Israel, you couldn't actually sell your inheritance, and it was gonna come back to you every seventh year in the, in the, in the year of Jubilee. So was she selling the land? Was she selling the right to the land? We could talk about that. The point here is that someone is given the opportunity to at least buy the rights to the land. That's what Boaz is offering this individual the opportunity to do. And so he lays that out for him. I thought I would tell you of it. Buy it in the presence of these witnesses. Follow the protocol, follow the customs, and buy it if you wish to do that. If you will not redeem it, excuse me, if you will redeem it, redeem it, he says. And so this individual, who by the way is unnamed, and in the Hebrew language, there's a real nuance behind that, there's a real purpose behind that, and really commentators say you could call him Mr. So-and-so. Because that's kind of in the Hebrew, he doesn't have an identity. That's significant. Because in the Hebrew language, your name is your legacy. And if you're unnamed, well, let's just see what that might mean. So this individual is given the opportunity to redeem this land, which could be profitable. Right? It could be. At, at very little cost to him. But then Boaz says, and oh, by the way, all right, I love this part of it. If he were doing a car commercial, this would be the really fast talking at the bottom. Oh, by the way, <laughs> there's something else that goes with this deal. So as he's laying out the, the, the situation, what the opportunities are, the day you buy it, From the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Leverite law, the law that God had laid out, had said next of kin were to marry the widow of a family member in order to, number one, perpetuate the name, and number two, protect the inheritance so that it doesn't fall outside of that family. There's close connection between God's covenant with his people and the land that should point us to heaven. There's a close connection between God's covenant to his people and their name. That should point us to the name that's going to be upon us through Christ. So in this case, he says, you take the land, you get the woman. The land could be profitable. The woman will be costly. The land might be a pretty good deal. The woman and those offspring, that is the firstborn brother that comes from her, his name will be on that wheel." So, Mr. So-and-so, you can have this property, and you can buy the right to use it, and you'll get Ruth as your wife, but you'll also get her son as not your son, but the son of her husband who has passed away. He has the right to the land. Now, all of a sudden, this proposition is not quite as attractive as it might have been before. It could have been profitable, but now it's going to be costly. There's no doubt about that. And he says so. I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. You take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. So here is Boaz. He knows this individual. The elders of the city are sitting there. They know this individual. And now all of a sudden Boaz is seen again as a man of character. A man who is willing not only to pay the price... Will continue to pay the price in taking the full responsibility, not just of the land, but of Ruth. And he is willing to do that. And so, all of a sudden, this individual, who, whose name we do not know, just will disappear off the scene. He's like Orpah, the other daughter-in-law of Naomi in chapter 1, who walks back into Moab never to be heard from again. And this individual here takes off his shoe as a sign of the deal being done. Uh, man, that, that, that is strange. And this was written so long enough following the event that the people who read it needed to be told this is how they used to do it. All right, so they're saying, we used to have a custom that when you sealed the deal, you took off your sandal and gave it to the one as a sign that you were going to do this. And so the writer is saying, okay, that was the deal back then. That was the, that was the tradition back then. And so he took off his sandal, he gave it to the other, and it was done. Buy it for yourself. And this man with no name continues to have no name. He has no legacy. We have no knowledge of anything that happened to him. That's significant. You need to recognize that. Because we have just the opposite about to unfold before us. So it picks up. The redeemer who's willing to pay is Boaz. And he points us to a redemptive story that goes way back and will continue for a long time. Notice what it says. Pick up the reading in verse 9. Boaz said to the elders of all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are witnesses this day. You are witnesses. Isn't it interesting? There were no witnesses the night before. Boaz was in the dark with this lady. And she came provocative. She came very riskily. Not risque. Well, it was in a way. And in the dark, by himself, with nobody as a witness, he made the right decision. The next day, in public in front of the leaders of the city and the leaders of his community, he did the same thing. He made the right decision. And he said, you are witnesses. That's a big deal to me. It should be to us. He did what was right in the dark. And guess what? People who do that will do the right in the light. And so there he goes. You are witnesses of what I have done. And the elders recognized this. All the people who were at the gate said, we are witnesses. And then they announced this blessing. A prayer, if you will, but a blessing, a proclamation. Notice what it says. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And in verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the woman will give you, that the Lord will give you, rather, by this young woman. The blessing of the elders, the blessing of the readers of the community kind of reads this way in my mind. May Ruth and your relationship, if you will, take the proper place in God's redemptive story. Secondly, may you continue to be the kind of man that you proved yourself to be. May there be consistency in your life, Boaz. And thirdly, may this royal line continue. So, may may Ruth have a place in God's redemptive story. Would Ruth be like Rachel and Leah? Who, if we go back and read in the Old Testament account, they're the wives of Jacob. And they're the mothers, if you will, of the 12 tribes of Israel. From Jacob and these two women came the tribes of Israel. So, Ruth, the elders are speaking into Boaz's life. We're, we're praying that you will take your place in that long line of God's purposes in his redemptive story. <laughs> they have no idea how God's going to answer that. But he does. So there's, there's, a, there's a long view here in the way they're blessing and praying for Boaz and his, and his wife. Secondly, though, it's very personal. Very personal for him. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And again, they have no idea how renowned he'll be. We're still talking about Boaz, right? We have no idea who this other guy was. All we know is what he wanted. Here, Boaz is recognized as being worthy, And renowned in Bethlehem. May you continue to be the man that you've already been, which is a worthy man, walking in righteousness. And may you, or or implied your name, be renowned. Renowned in Bethlehem, renowned in Roxborough, renowned around the world, as this story is read. Thirdly, in that blessing, may this royal line continue. And may your house be like the house of Perez. Whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. There's a, there's a back story here that we won't take the time. I would encourage you to go back and read in Genesis 28. And it's, it's like some of the passages that we read in the book of Judges. It's pretty ugly. It's pretty ugly. It's a, it's a picture of deceit. Sexual immorality. It's a picture of things. Here's what it's a picture of it's a picture of how crooked the road was that our Savior got to us on. It is a crooked road. And so here's this. Here's this. May, may your house be like the house of Perez. So what is the, the situation here is that Judah, his son died. His widow was still alive. Judah said to Tamar, and I'm cutting cutting corners on the story, but the story is Judah said to Tamar, if you'll just wait, I have another son growing up. He'll come and be your husband, and you'll continue in the line. So, well, guess what? The boy grows up, and Judah doesn't come through with his deal. And Tamar recognizes that. So Tamar does something similar in some ways to what Ruth did. She cleans up, dresses up, except she hides her face and she goes and sits on the street, sits on the road, dressed like a prostitute. Judah comes along and wants to buy. She said, well, what sign will you give me? How how do I know you're going to come through and pay me the goat that you say you'll pay me? And he leaves his signet ring. He leaves his staff. And three months later, Tamar comes up pregnant. And they come and tell Judah that your daughter-in-law is pregnant from immorality. He says, bring her out and we'll stone her. They bring her out. Oh, by the way, Tamar has this, which belongs to the man who got me pregnant. And Judah says, she's actually more righteous than I am. Again, it's the custom of the day. It's, it's customs and nuances that we would look at and go, that is crazy. But that was, that was the custom of the day. So here's the similarity between Tamar and Ruth. Both of them were relying on someone outside of themselves to come and fulfill what God's purpose or what the customary intention was of the day. Ruth did it the right way. Tamar did it the wrong way. But God still used it. Boaz did it the right way. Judah did it the wrong way. But God still blessed it. It's a crooked road. It's a crooked road. But it's, but God, He kept moving on it. So there's the picture. May this royal line continue. And so, by God's grace, both Tamar and Ruth play a really important role in our salvation's history because they're both listed in Jesus' genealogy. It's astounding. And it should be of such encouragement to us and give us such hope. And by the way, it was Perez in First Chronicles when this genealogy is given to us of the descendants. It is this line that's recorded for us. So God's purposes are being carried out here. The redemptive storyline is going to continue. But then after all of this plays out, let's pick it up in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So here's this picture again. God is almost a secondary character in the book of Ruth. We're only told twice that God actually does something. Now, he moves, and we understand from our perspective he's working in the background, right? But we're only told twice in Ruth that God actually does something. He gave a harvest in the beginning of the book. He gave a barley harvest in Bethlehem in the land. And now he gives a baby. And so we see God working and moving there. So, and what he's doing is he's answering the prayers of the people, the blessings of the people that had come before. God gave a baby. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So here's this picture of God's faithfulness. He gives Ruth to Boaz, he gives Boaz to Ruth, and then he gives them a child. God's just faithful in this. Ruth gets a new identity. Ruth gets everything that Naomi had prayed that she would get before. And we see God just being faithful. Underlying all of this is that hesed commitment, that covenant love, covenant faithfulness, covenant kindness. Hesed. That's an important word. Don't ever forget it. Write it down in your Bible. God's it. It's critical that we understand that that's the foundation of everything that we see going on in the book of Ruth. Ruth gets Boaz. Boaz gets Ruth. God gives them a baby. He gives this baby where formerly there was what? Ten years of barrenness. What changed in Ruth's life? What changed in her physically? We don't, that's not the point. For ten years she was married... To Naomi's son, and had no children. And now, boom, she's given a child. And this baby is born. And this restoration, this fullness that comes into this picture here, this instant fertility, if you will, that's what it was. It stands in stark contrast to the emptiness and barrenness that's been up until this point in time in the book of Ruth. She gets this baby. The Lord gets thanks. So, the women said to Naomi, all of a sudden now the attention has changed. Here's Boaz and Ruth. Here's a baby. Nine months later, verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him. So here's this picture of God being praised and being thanked and Naomi getting the blessing. That's kind of how it works, right? God gets the praise, he gets the thanks, and we get the blessing. We get the benefit of that, right? Well, that's what we see unfolding here. The blessing of being restored. So Ruth brings this baby. What what seems to be pictured for us here is is Ruth comes and just lays this baby in Naomi's lap. And, And... and Naomi took the baby and laid him on her lap, it says in verse 16. But there's this picture here of Ruth bringing this child to Naomi. Now I can't imagine the scene. And again, the background, the emptiness, the barrenness, the brokenness, the grief, the hunger. The questions about what my future is going to look like. All of a sudden, all of that has changed. Everything has changed. Blessed be the Lord who changes our situations. Amen? Blessed be the Lord who out of darkness and lostness brings light and life. Blessed be the Lord, they say. And here's the women talking. Again, through the book of Ruth, women are playing such a pivotal part, often in the background, sometimes on right in the center of the stage with the spotlight on But it's the women here who come and praise the Lord. And just remind Naomi of what it is that God is going to do, has done, and is doing through the life of this little boy. He's going to be to you a restorer, they say. He's going to bring back that which has been lost, that which has been missing. She was brought back empty. And God had brought her bitterness, she said. And now she holds this baby. There's a new vitality in this woman. There's a new purpose in her. He's going to be for you a restorer. Notice He's also going to be a nourisher. He's going to sustain. Well, the Bible tells us that God does that for all of His people. Cast your burden on the Lord, it says in Psalm 55, 22. And He will sustain you. I don't know. I, I just... I hope and I pray and I know in one way that there's somebody here or maybe several people who just put yourself in the place of where Naomi, not where she is now, but where she was. There's nothing cheerful about this week for you. It's hard. And there may be bitterness. And there is darkness. And there's an empty spot that you feel needs to be filled And this is such an encouraging word today. That God sustains those who are His. And that may be a crooked road to that fullness. But God does it. You're going to be blessed, Naomi. This child is going to be a nourisher for you. And Naomi, in case you need to be reminded, you are loved. Your daughter-in-law loves you. And by the way, that daughter-in-law to you, is more than seven sons. The numbers here are significant again. This number of perfection, this number of fulfillment. Naomi, you just need to understand this, this daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. You are being loved fully. You are being cared for fully. The Hesed covenant faithfulness of God is being poured out on you through this person. One commentator said this, More than anyone else in the history of Israel, Ruth embodies the fundamental principle of the nation's ethic. Well, what is that ethic? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the, that is the identity of the people of God in the Old Testament. And Bloch says, more than anybody else up until this point, Ruth embodies that fundamental principle. Moses instructed the Israelites, he said, to love the stranger as they love themselves. And he goes on to say that, ironically, it's this stranger, this alien, this person who isn't from here, who comes into Israel and shows them what it looks like to be obedient to God's command. That's 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 powerful right there. That's important for us to recognize that. Naomi gets this. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name. What did the neighbors name him? Was Boaz and Ruth not involved in this? I I don't understand what it's saying there in verse seventeen. I don't know if the neighbors actually named him and said, "By the way, Boaz." This is the angel seemed to have that job earlier. Or, you know, later on, right? To to Mary and Ruth. The point here is that this is recognized, this child is recognized by all those in the community. And I think Ruth and Boaz probably had a part in naming their son. I think that would be quite normal for us to assume that. But the women of the neighborhood gave him this name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, which by the way is short from the name Obadiah, which by the way means servant of the Lord. So There's some significance in that name. So here's this picture. Naomi gets a grandson and Israel gets a king. Naomi gets a grandson and Israel gets a king. So the result of this child is more than just one woman being nourished and restored. But it is about that. It is very personal. It is absolutely personal. One person at a time being redeemed, restored, and nourished. Ruth has laid this child in her lap, given it to Naomi, and this child will be concerned, the text tells us, for the well-being of Naomi. And there's the pattern again. God's chesed. God's covenant faithfulness. His kindness. His love. Which has been shown by Ruth to Naomi. It's been shown by Boaz to Ruth. It's been shown by Ruth to Boaz. And now Naomi, who has received that Hesed kindness through Boaz and Ruth, will receive it a third way through this child. And all the way through it we see pictured this covenant faithfulness of God. His kindness working through Ruth, working through Boaz, working through Obed. Working through the scriptures all the way to Jesus, all the way to us. So Naomi will be nourished and restored. So she, for a time being, can nourish and restore and take care of Obed. And Obed will then take care of her. And we see this beautiful cycle, this picture. And I think it's significant that he's named Obed. The the women seem to name him that. And it's short for servant. And we read on in Isaiah... Where God says, My servant will act wisely. And we read on in Mark 10, where Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life. That thread of Hesiod commitment and covenant love working its way all the way through the scriptures. Naomi gets a grandson, Israel gets a king, and we get the king, our Redeemer. Verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. It begins in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And oh, by the way, David was the father of Solomon by the wife named Uriah, another turn in the crooked road. You see that? This is amazing. Here's Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Three women mentioned in the first five verses of the genealogy of our son. Foreigners, prostitutes, it's a crooked road. But God reaches his destination. Amen. He does. He reaches his destination. I'm thankful for every turn in that road. Because that just reminds me that that ditch that I fall into is not so deep that I can't get out of it by God. I'm thankful for that. There's ten years of barrenness. Back here in Ruth chapter 4, there's ten descendants listed. That number's significant. If you go read in Genesis chapter 5 and read the genealogy of Noah, Noah will be the tenth descendant. And God makes a new covenant with him. If you go forward and look in Genesis chapter 11, Abraham will be the tenth name in that particular genealogy. And Abraham and God have a new covenant together. And David here is listed as the tenth in this genealogy. And there will be a covenant with him too. That he would always have a descendant on the throne. And he does. It's such a beautiful picture of God's covenant faithfulness on the crooked road of humanity bringing the savior who will save humanity don't miss this too this is the time of judges when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes and they were eaten up from the inside out with the cancer of sin and self-centeredness and self-autonomy they were dying from the inside out and their king came from the inside God was faithful. And for that, we should be so, so thankful. Let me give you just three points of application, just to consider more than anything. And I want you to rest in this. I want you to be challenged by this. I want us to just think about this this week as we move towards celebration of Christmas next Sunday morning together. The storyline of the Bible from beginning to end is the storyline of love and redemption. Now the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians that the love of God is so wide and deep and broad and high that it cannot be conceived of. And he prays that we would be able to fathom that. That we would be able to understand that in some way. But the storyline of the Bible and this deep, deep love is that of just God saying... Israel, in Hosea 11, when you were a child, I loved you. It's the picture that he gives us in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He loved our fathers. Or Moses said he loved your fathers. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, as God is just reminding the people of how precious they are to him, he says, the Lord chose you to be his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, not because of anything you brought, it says, not because you were more in number But the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It's personal. It's personal. All the way through the scriptures. God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's personal. Christ loves his church and gave himself up for her. It's personal. The shepherd looked for one. Are you that one? The widow searched and turned her house upside down to find one in ten. Are you that one? That prodigal son left the pig pen and his destitute brokenness and starvation and emptiness and came running back. And that crazy father of his took him back. Ran to meet him. Are you him? Not the father. Are you the one needing to be embraced and received? That's the story of Ruth. Ruth. Your road's crooked too. Come to the God who took a crooked road to save you. Alright? And God loves those who know they need a Redeemer. That's the picture that we see in Ruth. Those who would come. Mr. So-and-so, he didn't need anything. And he didn't have room for God in his plans. That was pretty clear from his response. His little life was figured out. And it was organized. And he needed to protect his inheritance. So there wasn't room for anybody else. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. One writer said, There is no room in God's kingdom for people who are impressed with themselves or whose eyes are fixed on their own efforts. The door to God's kingdom is open only to those who know they have nothing to offer. Nothing. Thirdly, one of the things we see throughout the book of Ruth is that we should never underestimate the impact of a worthy life. Of just being holy and righteous and doing what God calls us to do. In the dark and in the light. I was so thankful this week when Dr. Aiken quoted from Psalm 1 as he was referring to Jim. And how appropriate it is that we think even about that psalm as we close this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And then David goes on to say that he's like a tree planted by streams of water, whose leaf does not wither and whose fruit is always present. Lawson Younger said this, When we live the life of personal holiness, doing hesed to others, loving one another within the community of faith, and loving our neighbors, there is the expectation that through God's sovereignty and providential care, such a life will impact and that will go far beyond our lifetime. God's blessing of ordinary people who make extraordinary decisions and live extraordinary lives of hesed those ordinary people... That impact goes on for countless generations. We're still talking about Boaz, right? And we have no clue who this other guy was. Don't be that person who the only thing we know you for is that dash between those two dates. And if your life is built on your kingdom and your ability and what you bring to the party, it will not take long And it will be forgotten. But what we see in the book of Ruth is that those who do the right thing, empowered, we know from a New Testament perspective, by the Holy Spirit, and follow the Word of God, and we understand there that that's again by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace in our lives, there's the expectation, and rightly so, that God will sovereignly work and move in and through our lives for His glory. And that that fruit will last Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this picture of light in the dark, of fullness coming from emptiness, of this picture of covenant love and faithfulness and kindness being poured out by you through others into the lives of many. Lord, we want to be funnels. We want to be conduits for that. Father, I pray first that if there is someone here today who has never trusted in Jesus, that, God, they would bring that emptiness. And maybe they don't even see it as emptiness, but show them that, Lord, I pray. I pray that no one here will be like Mr. So-and-so who just walks off the pages of Scripture, never to be heard from again. But he had his little kingdom. God, I pray that no one in this room would be like that. We want to be like Boaz and Ruth. Receiving your chesed love and faithfulness and pouring that back out into the lives of others. Father, we thank you for servant Jesus, King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray, God, for uh, that person to turn from themselves and trust in Christ today. And, Lord, I pray for us who have trusted in Christ to once again be overwhelmed by your love and commitment to us, your care for us. And the empowering through your spirit by your word, God, that we have to go and live lives like this. That really do have an eternal impact. We pray for fruit from that. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.